let's start off with the Lord's Prayer as an introduction to our time of, uh, of the Word. And I know that we've all been taught the Lord's Prayer in different ways, Old King James, updated language, uh, debts, trespasses, sins. So we're going to put it on the screen just so that we're at least saying the same things, okay? So let's do this together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday, we began a series within a series. We've been working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is his most concise and comprehensive single teaching on what it looks like for humans to flourish in the kingdom of God. It's kind of a picture of what life in the kingdom of God could look like. And right in the middle of the Sermon on the, of the Mount, right in the heart of the whole thing, is a prayer, this prayer that we just prayed. One might expect if Jesus were giving the quintessential teaching on the kingdom of God, that in the heart of that teaching, he would have had something more like dealing with ethics or rules or behavior or guidelines. But what Jesus seems to care about the most, the core of his teaching, is how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. Jesus gives us a prayer at the center of his sermon and if you were to just read the four Gospels, you could argue that prayer, the act of relating to the Father, was at the center of Jesus' life as well. He was always connecting with the Father, getting instruction from the Father, doing things for the glory of the Father. As we enter a new year together, I want us to do more than just learn about the meaning of the prayer at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to learn to pray, to pray. My hope is that by taking our time together over these next few weeks, we'll be encouraged to pray like Jesus taught us to pray. And one of the things I'll be highlighting is that prayer, this prayer at the center, what we call the Lord's Prayer oftentimes, is not intended to restrict us. It's not saying, here's how you pray, and here's how you have to pray, and here's the only way you can pray. It's intended to ground us in what is vital and then to encourage us to pray creatively, allowing each of the six petitions in that prayer uh, to launch us into prayers of our own. So each week, we're going to be taking a different phrase from the prayer at the center. And once we've covered um, uh, some of the deeper meaning of that phrase, you and I will be invited uh, to respond with a request of our own based on that prayer. So the idea is that we're going to create a custom prayer based on the Lord's Prayer together as a church. It's gonna be grounded in that prayer in the center, but nuanced for your personality and our personality as a church. So that's what those colored pieces of paper are in your bulletin. If you got a bulletin, there should be a couple sheets of paper. And if you didn't get one, you can get one at any time because uh, you might need that later on in the service. Hold on to those in, until uh, I give you some instructions later on in the sermon time. 
And folks who are on live stream, you are free to, to email in your prayers, the, the ones that you're gonna create later on, uh, at our info at Leonard Street CC uh, email address. I think Mike can put it up there on a slide for you. So let me, let me just give you an example because we started this whole thing last week. Last week we looked at our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we learned about the importance and intimacy of being invited to pray to God directly as Father. And we learned together that asking God to hallow his name means that he would take his character and that he would make it known to the world, that he would take his, his glory, his true self, and that he would make it known to us and to the world, that he would cut through the false ideas about how, how we think he is and how the world thinks he is, that we might know him for how he truly is. So you'll see this garland up here. These are some of the prayers that Elizabeth kindly sewed together. And we're gonna just hang them week after week. So you're gonna add your prayers to this this week. And so here's some examples of things that we prayed as a church that you submitted. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Please remind me to act like I believe what you say and to look at Jesus to know what you're like. Clear the lies about you from my head. Cut through the negative press and rumors started about you by your people. Father, our, let your love be louder in our ears and our hearts than Christian nationalism, than those who abuse your name for the sake of power. Be made known, Lord. Show your character. Those are some of the responses that you gave and you put in that jar when you came up for communion last week. And so they're all sewn in. And by the end of this series, we're gonna have this big, long prayer that we as a church are praying together based on the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so let's dive into this second petition of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer at the center. It goes like this. Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So let's just, let's just take this idea, this concept of praying about the kingdom coming. What does that mean? Um, we in the United States don't use that word very often. In fact, our whole nation is based on rejection of monarchy, right? Like we didn't want a king, and so we became the United States and we're a democracy. We pretty much reject kingdoms and queendoms. So what does Jesus mean by kingdom? Well, he uses this Greek word basileia, in which we translate as kingdom. And the problem is that when I think of kingdom, I usually think of physical boundaries. So I might think of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and I can picture on my mind the, the geographical boundaries on a map, and I say, that's, that's the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But this word basileia, according to Wesley Hill, suggests that it's more of an active term than a geological term. So it's not talking about an area of God's kingdom necessarily as his active reign, as his rule, as his kingship. So when we say the kingdom of God, we're not thinking so much about like God has this part of the world and then there's these other kingdoms that are on the world that are different than his kingdom and they're kind of at war with each other or in opposition to each other. We're talking about his active rule and reign over everything. 
And the best way I can think of to illustrate this concept is from scripture and looking at particularly three main sections of scripture. The beginning and the end and the life of Jesus. Not quite in the middle, but I'm just gonna say the middle because it's between those two. So there's the beginning. Before humans rebelled against God, God created the world, the world that we know as the earth, and he brought forth life. Now, however he did it, however long it took, whatever the process for the origin of life, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created the world and he declared it good. The plants and the animals and the mountains and the valleys and the seas and the rivers, he declares it all good. The the cycles of birth and life and death, (coughs) he declares that all good. That includes genetic mutation and sometimes sickness. That includes earthquakes from shifting te- plate tectonics that cause the geography that I like to ski down. And we're well, actually ours are volcanic, but you know, it, it includes volcanoes. It includes all of this crazy weather stuff. Declared it all good. It's part of his creation. And in this dynamic world, he placed human beings, men and women and boys and girls, whom he made as his representatives. And he walked with us, and he gave us authority to take the raw materials of a wild, wild creation and to work with it and to create cultures and order and beauty and society and bluegrass and all kinds of cool stuff. That's our vocation as human beings. And the whole point of it is not just to serve ourselves, but to reflect the glory of God back into the creation, to show each other little glimpses of God. It's amazing. So God's kingdom, his reign from the very beginning of time included working with and in and through human beings. That's, I, I don't get it. It's so imperfect because he's got to work with us, but that's how he has chosen to do stuff, to work with people. His kingdom is relational, And while he is sovereign, that means the one in charge, he gives great dignity and authority to people. And that's just amazing. Now, unfortunately, at the beginning of the Bible, we don't see a whole lot of examples of how people use that dignity and authority for God's kingdom building because, very quickly, human beings rebel against God. And we wanted to make our own kingdoms and queendoms and to kind of be in charge of ourselves. And God has endowed us with fantastic power and responsibility to do incredible good, but when we turned from him, we didn't lose that power. And we all see the outcomes of our rebellion, wars and and evil rulers and greed and distortions of what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. Now, this is, this is the interesting tension. Because God respects his image bearers, he allows us to usurp his kingdom. But because God loves his image bearers and his creation, he's going to one day bring his kingdom in fullness on earth as it is in heaven. So what does that look like? What are we asking for when we pray this prayer Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, there's two aspects to it. 
I mean, there's a million aspects to it, but I'm going to be simple because I'm preaching right now and you don't want to be here all night. So I'm going to talk about the future aspect and we're going to talk about the present aspect. Let's start with the future. We just heard Schoon read from Revelation 21 and 22, and we get in that a picture, albeit a metaphorical picture, of where God's reign, his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that the story, the the biblical story, does not point at all toward us going somewhere else. The story doesn't point to us going away from earth and certainly not going to a place called heaven. The story points to a time when God's kingdom comes to earth. And in this kingdom, we hear about judgment for those who have made a life of greed at the expense of other people. For everyone out there who is oppressed by evil regimes and systematic discrimination like racism or national elitism, there will be freedom and joy when the kingdom comes. But for those who participate in the oppression, those who have not changed their ways and who have not trusted in Jesus, there will be a form of judgment. And you have to understand that for the vast amount of people, for most of human history, the idea of judgment by a good God is extremely good news. Like most oppressed people throughout history never got to see justice while they were still alive, and that continues today. The promise of judgment and justice in the future is incredibly important. But judgment makes up only a small part of the kingdom coming. And most of this message is about an age in which there are no more tears, no more sin, no more shame, no more isolation from God. He's literally there with the people. An age in which our hearts are uncorrupted so we can actually love deeply without reservation and all of the baggage that we currently have who doesn't have baggage about intimacy. You're fooling yourself if you don't think so. This is, this is an age when, when relationships are healthy and unhindered by the baggage that we have accumulated in the kingdoms we've constructed without God. That was a mouthful. There's going to be life and joy and abundance and beauty, and we will once again be set on a course of contributing to God's reign by our human vocation of reflecting his glory back to each other and to the creation. Speaking of creation, the earth, the plants, the animals, all of it will be redeemed, enhanced, made new. (laughs) Oh God, bring your kingdom, amen? I mean, how we want to see this happen? So we have our origin story that outlines the intent of God's kingdom. We have a vision of the fullness of that kingdom that will one day come in its fullness, But in between, we have to look to Jesus as the one who shows us in his person and in his ministry what God's kingdom looks like in real time and in real space and in physical relationships. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and trust in this good news. Jesus was not claiming that the kingdom had fully come. All of that stuff we just talked about from Revelation described at the end of the Bible, that's still in the future. But Jesus came and showed us a glimpse of God and a glimpse of what the kingdom can look like. 
So the relationship that was broken when humans rebelled and they were cast out of the garden, Jesus begins to restore that. And in Jesus, we see God face to face. We observe his character and we can say, oh, that's what, that's what God is like. We, we come to know the Father by seeing Jesus interact with people. And what, one of the axioms that we, we've, you've probably heard me say over and over again is that Jesus is at one and the same time holy and safe. He's holy and he's safe. So in one story, Peter is just confronted with this holiness. Remember, he's fishing, and he realizes that Jesus has done this miracle with the fish, and he just is overwhelmed by the holiness of Jesus, and he falls on his knees, and he just says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus hadn't done anything. He wasn't like sporting a halo that day, and he wasn't like preaching all this mean stuff. He was just there doing his thing, but it's like he had this this gravitas, this glory that sometimes you would just get a glimpse of and it would make a, a brash, braggadocious man like Peter fall to his knees and just say, I can't be in your presence. You are too much for me. But then you see him interacting with other people like Mary Magdalene or Zacchaeus the tax collector or the woman at the well. Three people who were notorious for their past and even their current sinful lifestyles. And at one and the same time as Jesus interacts with them, he projects deep care and concern while his, just his presence triggers a desire for them to change and to follow him in new life. So in Jesus, we see God, which is part of the kingdom coming, humans and God in good relationship and in Jesus, we see the curse of sin and death beginning to be unraveled and undone. So Jesus heals the sick, and then he restores them to community. He casts out demons, and he frees people from spiritual bondage. He even raises the dead on a couple of occasions in the Gospels. So where the kingdom of God is, there is thriving and community and restoration. But as you and I know pretty well, it, the problem isn't just solved if you're healed once or if you're forgiven once. Um, even getting another go at life, like a video game, like I got a new life, like Lazarus was dead and then he got a new life. But you know what? Ra Lazarus was gonna die again. Um, he's not with us today. He's, he died again. Like just giving a, a bunch of single do-overs doesn't really solve the human problem. there's still the consequences of sin that we have to deal with. And that's what Jesus does. Part of the promise of the kingdom coming uh, that we read about in the prophets, maybe the starkest example would be Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of that book, is this cryptic agent of God who would one day take on the sin and the illness or infirmity on our behalf. And Jesus claims to have fulfilled that prophecy. That's what the church believes about Jesus. Jesus takes our sin and pays our debt so that through trust in him, we don't have to. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection in those three days did what we could never do, which is atone for our sin and rob death of being our ultimate future. Oh, Father, 
bring your kingdom, amen? I need that. And, and so we have an image of what the kingdom will be like when we consider the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, and we have some concrete examples of what it will look like when we consider the life of Jesus. But for now, we live in this strange in-between time, the now and the not yet of the kingdom. So you go to bed at night, and you know, based on good evidence, that the sun will rise in the morning. It's gonna happen. But there's darkness before the sunrise. There is a dawn that has hazy light by which you can sort of see, but you can't see very clearly. And that's sort of like living in the in-between time of the now and the not yet. You or someone you love may be expecting a child. There's a pregnancy. That child is gonna come in time. But in the meantime, there are things to be done, preparations to make, pains in the body, changes in our thinking. Because of the new thing that is inevitably coming, the new person who is coming, you actually strive to make things better now, don't you? If you're, if you're a good parent or a good auntie or a good friend of someone you know who's expecting a child, you actually strive to make things better so that when that new arrival comes, the house is in order. You, you might finally decide to quit some bad habits because you realize, like, I'm not just hurting myself anymore. I might be hurting this new, wonderful life that's coming. Uh, the coming of God's kingdom means hope for the future, but it also has implications for now, for real life. But there's an aspect to all of this that I, we haven't really addressed yet. So far, I've been talking about these massive generalities. Things always seem great when you talk in generalities. One day when the kingdom comes, evil will be judged and the oppressed set free. That sounds amazing. But what about the parts of us, what about the parts of me, that have become comfortable living in the system of oppression that holds others down? What about the part that I play in it all, and that you play in it all. The kingdom will require change. And maybe you don't really want to change everything about your life. Maybe I don't want, in fact, I don't want to change everything about my life. I've still got some stubborn, stubborn strongholds. The kingdom will require change. There's the broad brushstroke of one day when the kingdom comes, we'll see the Sermon on the Mount in action. Yeah, sounds great. But not if we've grown accustomed to like harboring anger because it makes us feel powerful or it makes us feel righteous. Not if we're into indulging our lust or manipulating other people or finding our security and identity in our possessions or in being judgmental and cynical and jaded, if that's how we've learned to navigate the world, eh, I don't know that I want to change that. That's who I am, or so I think. The kingdom of God will require change, and maybe we don't really want to change. Or consider the broad brushstroke of when the kingdom of God comes, we'll be in the presence of God, the relationship at the center of the universe. Woohoo! What if I don't want to submit to the reign of God just yet? 
What if deep down we enjoy the illusion that we have some sort of control in our lives? You know what I'm talking about. Why do I get so frustrated when things don't work out the way I think they ought to? Because I actually think I have some control over my life. I've not learned yet. So, when we pray to the Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, one of the things we can be praying is, oh God, help me to want your kingdom to come. Help my heart want your kingdom to come. You know, we're living in a really difficult time right now uh, that simply highlights what has been true of all times for human history. COVID and things like heightened nationalist politics have only magnified the anxieties and tensions that human beings have faced for millennia. And what a gift it is to us that the relationship at the center of the universe, the triune God, has invited us to ask that his kingdom come crashing in to the places of our fear and the places of our brokenness and the places of the world's brokenness and despair. How might Jesus be inviting you to pray your kingdom come? Where in your life or in the life of the world that you're, you're living in, are you longing to see the reign of God come to make things new and right and beautiful and good? Whatever it is in your life or in the world around you, I encourage you to jot that down on your prayer card. And you can, if you desire, put that in that jar if you come forward for communion. You could put it in the jar at the very end of the service before you go home. Uh, you could email me at the info at site uh, later on this week, but we'll weave those into the prayers of the church, and those can totally be anonymous. It's just going to be the prayer of us, the people. I'm going to transition now to a time of healing prayer. Uh, Emily Frazier and I will be at these kneeling benches uh, with our, our masks on, ready to pray for you, and I, I know that...